0: Today's cloudcast is brought to you by Datadog, a cloud-scale monitoring platform that brings together your infrastructure metrics, distributed traces, and logs into one platform. Datadog enables all teams within an organization to track, manage, and monitor their SLOs in the same place that they're already monitoring and managing their applications, infrastructure, logs, user experience, and much more. Your teams are able to search, sort, and filter all their SLOs in a comprehensive view and easily visualize the status of individual SLOs in their application dashboards. This allows your teams to communicate that SLO status to the broader teams, executives, and external customers. Now you can manage all your SLOs along with your applications, infrastructure, and logs in one place with Datadog. Try Datadog for yourself with a free 14-day trial, and you'll receive a complimentary t-shirt. Just go to datadog.com cloudcast. That's datadog.com cloudcast. Cloudcast Media presents, from the Massive Studios in Raleigh, North Carolina, this
1: is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delb and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world.
0: Good morning, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome back to the Cloudcast. We are coming to you live from the Massive Cloudcast Studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. I want to thank everybody for coming back this week. It is exciting to kind of get back into the work stream, kind of get back into the the groove of things in terms of uh, everybody's sort of back from holiday, uh, we're starting to see some things happen in the news. We're seeing some thing, see some things happen in our industry. So that's always fun. Uh, a couple of quick housekeeping things before we get to the cloud news of the week. I uh, want to thank everybody who has made a generous donation to our fundraising for the Krispy Kreme Challenge or the AKA the Donut Run. Uh, I think we're up to about uh, 80 percent of our goal. So our goal is around thirty five hundred dollars. We are about twenty six, twenty seven hundred dollars 2700 um, So if you would still like to make a donation, there's a couple weeks left. Uh, there is a big box, uh, big logo at the top of the cloudcast.net. Also, you can find the link in the show notes, or if you look in our Twitter feed, you can find it as well. So thank you to everybody who's made a contribution. It makes a huge difference for those kids and families that are struggling. And uh, we'd love to, uh, you know, finish with an even bigger number if that's at all possible. So thank you to everybody for their generosity. Second thing is I want to uh, welcome—we get a lot of statistics about the show from time to time, and uh, for the first time, I think, in our history, we cracked the— Top 100 technology podcast in China, in Taiwan, and in Hong Kong this last week. So, I want to welcome uh, all the new listeners from uh, that part of the world. It's great to have you listening. Great to have you telling a friend or telling your colleagues. Um, you know, we we know uh, sometimes the language can be a little bit uh, different, and uh, but we really appreciate you tuning in and, and telling a friend. So, that's exciting to see the show growing in other parts of the world, just outside of the U.S. and in Europe. And, uh, you know, finally, we're going to we're going to kind of get to our interview. I want to thank Amy Lewis for uh, be co-ing, being the co-host on our interview for this week. We'll talk about that before we finish up Cloud News of the Week. We want to thank her for that. So let's get to Cloud News of the Week. We are beginning to see uh, a little bit of, uh, of news starting to pop up, a little bit of activity happening in the year, a um, couple of pieces of speculation. Well, actually, we'll start off with. Uh, a couple of actual pieces of news, and then we'll, we'll talk about a couple of pieces of speculation. Uh, Veeam, who many of you know who uh, are in the storage space, uh, Veeam was acquired this week for $5 billion uh, by private pri- private equity firm. Um Kind of, you know, an interesting thing. Veeam has been an outstanding company, was doing, uh, I think, close to a billion dollars in revenue, uh, was, was really sort of, had really sort of reshaped uh, backup and, and leveraging the cloud for backup. So, congratulations to the Veeam team. Um, you know, it's always interesting to see what happens when, you know, they get acquired by private equity versus another tech company, but congratulations to that team. Uh, The second piece of news um, that I saw, for those of you that follow the telco market and some of the transitionings happening in the telco market around virtualization and containers, uh, we saw both AT&T and Verizon announce some numbers around how much of their network they had virtualized, especially prior to the big 5G rollouts. Uh, AT&T essentially said uh, they had rolled out about 65% uh, of virtualized or VNFs. Um, In their environment, a little behind their scheduled pace, they had expected to be about 75%. uh, But they also said they were slightly ahead of Verizon. So it's interesting to see that market transition over the years, uh, more towards uh, using open source, uh, leveraging software instead of hardware. Uh, and then the two pieces of speculation that were kind of popping up uh, this last week, um, Dell uh, is apparently in the market looking to sell their RSA business, their security business for about $3 billion. So some speculation that that uh, asset is on the market uh, looking for about $3 billion. Obviously, Michael Dell trying to sell down uh, against the debt that he had from, from the large acquisition of VMware years and years ago. And as they make acquisitions like Carbon Black and other things um, you know, within their portfolio, within the VMware portfolio, RSA may become... Uh, redundant or overlapping with what they're trying to do. And then the last piece of speculation, and this is, you know, I guess I'm sort of including this just for completeness. Uh, There were some speculation this week, um, no real follow-up that Google or Google Cloud may actually be looking to to buy Salesforce to jumpstart uh, their cloud business or sort of legitimize their cloud business. Um, You know, for the most part, I sort of dismissed this for a couple of reasons. Um, You know, based on current market price of Salesforce, this would be Probably, you know, given a, say, 20 or 30% premium, maybe they would require more. You'd be looking at, you know, nearly a $200 billion acquisition. Um, this would be far and away the largest acquisition in the software tech industry ever. Um, you know, the uh, Dell buying VMware acquisition or Dell buying EMC was like $50 billion. Um, Red, uh, IBM buying Red Hat was $34 billion. Uh, you know, so this would be, what, 5X, 6X, almost 7X that A couple of other interesting pieces of it, Um, you know, Google as a whole, the whole company, the search business, everything has about $121 billion in cash. So it would be, uh, you know, probably at least, (laughs) I don't, I don't suspect they're going to spend all their cash. So it would be heavily, heavily debt financed Um, as most things are these days. uh, Cost of capital is cheap. Um, It would be very interesting to see, you know, their goal is to be number one or number two in cloud. Uh, Salesforce today does about 13 to $14 billion in revenue. If we, generously assume that VMware or uh, Google Cloud is doing 8 to 10 billion this still would not put them as number 1 um still would put them you know at least 10 billion probably maybe more behind uh, AWS and likely was going to put them you know behind uh Behind Microsoft, so would it make them number three. Yeah, likely, uh, but it would be a a humongous humongous undertaking uh, for for Google to go about doing that from a financial perspective. It'd be tough to sort of justify, you know, how you're going to get the returns out of out of that much. And then the last thing that would come out of this would be, you know, does Mark Benioff become the CEO of Google Cloud? Um, and if so, that would be a, a pretty quick giving up on uh, on uh, on the new CEO Kurian. So, you know, I I don't think this is going to happen. Interesting speculation, made some news but uh i don't suspect that it's going to happen but you never know i mean it's if they did it would be a a huge huge um Statement by Google Cloud that they're trying to be legitimate. Um, you know, I, I sort of joke and, and wonder if this is really somebody like Tom, like uh, like Curry and the CEO saying, "Hey, get me a better Salesforce." And somebody decided, "Hey, um, they should go out and buy Salesforce." So, bad joke there. Apologize for that, but uh, you know that that tends to be where Google's challenge in the marketplace is having the right enterprise Salesforce, maybe not the right technologies. With that, I'm going to wrap up cloud news of the week. Uh, we have a very exciting interview. Kind of follows our theme of. You know, looking ahead, uh, we're going to be talking about SaaS and sort of different aspects of SaaS as we look at where it is today and where it's going in 2020. So, let's go ahead and get to our interview. Today's Cloudcast is sponsored by UpCloud. Is your website running slow? Supercharge your hosting performance by deploying on the world's fastest cloud infrastructure. UpCloud offers superior cloud servers with advanced scalability, instant backup snapshots, an easy-to-use control panel, a fully featured API, and a ton of integration options and management partners. Pricing starts at only $5 a month with enough performance options to host any website or app, all backed by 24 by 7 live in-house support. You can get started today with a free trial using the promo code cloudcast at upcloud.com slash signup. That's upcloud.com slash signup with promo code cloudcast and receive an extra $50 to get going. So remember, that's upcloud.com slash signup promo code cloudcast. Today's show is sponsored by MongoDB. As a programmer, you think in objects. With MongoDB, so does your database. MongoDB is the most popular document database built for modern application developers and the cloud era. Millions of developers use MongoDB today to power the world's most innovative products and services, from cryptocurrency to online gaming, IoT, and much more. Try MongoDB today with Atlas, the global cloud database service that runs on AWS, Azure, and Google Cloud. Configure, deploy, and connect to your database in just a few minutes. Check it out today at mongodb.com slash atlas. That's mongodb.com slash atlas. And we're back. And you know, folks, as we talked about, um, you know, one of the things we're going to try and do in the first few shows is really sort of do a, a look ahead at a bunch of really important topics in the industry. And so uh, you know, today we're going to talk about SaaS, which I know for a lot of you that listen, uh, you, know, you live in the infrastructure world, you live in data centers, and SaaS may be sort of sometimes outside of what you are responsible for. But SaaS is one of those really, really large buckets that everybody interacts with one way, shape or another. And it's it's really beginning to shape and reshape what we do both in software, but also just how our businesses run. So uh, really excited to bring back friends of the show, uh, both Anil Lakani, Anil, welcome back to the show. Thank you. And Amy Lewis. Welcome back.
2: Hello.
0: Um, so, Anil, you, you've you been on the show a number of times. You were on last year. We were talking about sort of the, the business model behind SaaS. Um, but, you know, give folks a sense who may not have, have listened to that show, be new to the show, kind of some of the things that you do that are around SaaS and, and this new type of software delivery model.
2: Sure. So right now I'm what I call a fractional marketing executive for early-stage SaaS startups. I've been working in software as a service for about a decade at this point from small companies to mid-sized ones.
0: Yeah. And I I think calling yourself a marketing executive doesn't do yourself justice. You uh, for, for those, and we'll put these in the show notes, you do this uh, outstanding series of, of medium post blog posts that are basically, let me, from a marketer or product person perspective, explain things to engineers, I think, because it's so important that engineers understand the business side of what they're building software for.
2: Yeah. I mean, what the world I work in is a lot of first-time founders who are CEOs who come from very technical backgrounds, and a lot of times they don't necessarily have a grasp of the fundamentals of sales or how to do marketing or demand generation or even branding, and just a little bit of knowledge goes a long way in helping them be successful.
1: Something I can say I've observed from the industry is that has been the big difference between those who make it and those who don't. So if wisdom says seek out counsel to cover the spots you don't have, everybody, uh, every engineer doesn't necessarily know how to run a business. Right,
0: right. And uh, Amy, you you just jumped in. I didn't give you a proper introduction. Tell us what you're working on these days, because folks know you from having been on the show and helped co-host a number of times.
1: Um, Apparently intervening in everybody's conversations. But uh, (laughs) as a day job, I am the director of product marketing for... Um, a little tool called HCX over at VMware. So all about moving cloud workloads, uh, app mobility, et cetera.
0: Yeah. Excellent. 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 Um, So let's, let's start with a really simple question. Like what, what is SaaS? right? You know, if we went back 10 years ago, it was, uh, you knew a few applications. It was Salesforce. Uh, The NIST had a definition that basically said, you know, this is software that somebody else runs, but nowadays, uh, you know, Every aspect of business has some element that's SaaS. Well, how do you think about SaaS as somebody who helps companies you know, build out SaaS services or monetize them and so forth?
2: Sure. The way I think about software services is that it is a software product that is operated by the people who built it and used by the customers online somehow. Right, right. We were talking earlier, you you said, you know, SaaS has basically become, you
0: know, think about every business process that you have, there is probably a SaaS alternative for that rather than you owning it or building it yourself.
2: And if there isn't one, there will be one.
0: Right, right. (laughs) So you've you've been around this space for a while. Um, You know, initially, it was, uh, my my company doesn't have this thing, Uh, I can go online and get it, you know, it could be a CRM, it could be you know it could be a service that sends out emails or a newsletter thing what's it what's it evolved to I mean is it is it still just somebody else running software is it you know do people use it for experimentation? Is it you know just a different way of kind of managing your your cash flow like how do you think about it in a bigger picture
2: from the perspective of the customer, the way I think about it is that hey, can I effectively outsource this one process like having and running a CRM to a third party that does nothing but that and is an expert in it. Yeah. And if I do that, is it cheaper to run, better to run? Can I spend less time and effort running? Do I need to have fewer people who run it? And if so, is that worth it? And more often than not, the answer is, yes, it's worth it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I imagine, you know, back in the day when when IT had to own this stuff, they would do all these calculations. You know, how much does it cost and is it cheaper or whatever? I I suspect the business tends to narrow it down to more like, does this make me go faster? Is it something I just don't want to deal with? Or are they still kind of doing the cost calculations?
2: No, they're still doing the cost calculations. I mean, it depends on the customer. So larger customers that have, you know, buying departments and finance departments are still doing the calculation of, hey, I'm going to take a bunch of CapEx off my balance sheet. Yeah. And I'm going to turn this into a pure OpEx Expenditure, which is a different light item that goes in a different place and is calculated differently from an accounting perspective. Right. I can make my numbers look better. Right. Is that good? Yeah, probably. Right. And I can also get rid of some people or I can have these people who aren't specialists in this activity go do something more useful. Is that worth it? Usually. Yeah,
0: yeah. And, and if some of you are listening to this and you go, okay, he just talked about balance sheets and CapEx and OpEx, and I don't know what any of that means because it's not a protocol or, or a language, go, go take a look at Anil's post. He does, a, like he said, very good job of like, here's product in, for engineers. Here's accounting for engineers. Um, I, I think understanding some of those basic things are really important if you're, you're trying to realize, if, if, as long as you're getting out of the, hey, we're a cost to the business to we're trying to help drive revenue for the business.
1: And I actually have a question about that. Are all SaaS offerings the same as as you said, as people are entering this and making these decisions because I can imagine a risk of SaAS washing, if you will. Um, when you talk about the division, if they create and run and you just or they create, you run, is there a risk if someone's selling it as a SaaS offering, but you have to do more work? Like how do you determine what is the right product for you?
2: Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> so, I'm going to give a very unsatisfying answer to that, which is that someone is always trying to sell you some crap that is not going to deliver on its promises, and it's the burden of you, the buyer, to tell whether it's real or not, and you can get help from websites like G2 Crowd or analysts like Gartner, but at the end of the day, it's your problem to figure out where someone, well, if someone is trying to cheat you or not.
0: Yeah. Do, do you find the trend is still because i think about uh like what what amazon and azure do you know originally it was hey you can swipe a credit card you can pay by the hour now you see them talking more and more about long term contracts do is there a trend of how people like to buy SaaS offerings is it still by the user is it by the year God,
2: no. i so so i actually hate this part yeah i'm i have a lot of experience in it and i hate it there is no trend yeah There's the absence of a trend what there is is a bunch of different buying segments who have different preferences in how they buy things which has more to do with how they bought things in the past and less to do with what's best or what's optimal from a financial perspective and you have people who prefer paying by user you have people who prefer paying by a purely pay-as-you-go usage model you have people who prefer paying by device or people who prefer buying everything upfront in an annual contract or a five-year contract and then truing up monthly or quarterly or yearly. There
1: is just no pattern. Yeah. But wait, how do you compare apples to apples, Anil? <laughs> yeah, again, that's
2: just work. You have to do the work. Ain't no one gonna do that work for you.
0: Right, right. So it's, it, it, are you finding that if, if you are the SaaS provider, you have to be, like, are you finding that they're offering this a bunch of different ways? Or do you find they tend to offer one way, figure out if it works, and then start offering you know, multiple other ways to buy?
2: Yeah, typically what I see is that SaaS companies that choose to sell into enterprise, and let's not define what that means. Yeah, yeah, sure. Let's say larger companies will always start out with a single simple pricing model and inevitably end up at a very complex pricing model behind the scenes because they will price however the buyer wants to buy. Right. And At least segments of buyers will want to buy differently from each other. So you'll have one set of buyers who you're always going to sell prepaid, effectively, contracts. So you have another set of buyers that you're always going to sell seat-based contracts to, which hide all the other expenses and line items and...
0: That's just the world you live in right right yeah this is this is the thing I I try and tell people sometimes i I, I say this to the Google folks all the time because they like to believe that hey we'll give you one model, and the more you use it the cheaper you'll get and you go, well that's cool in a Data science world, but you're dealing with people who, like you said, have just different preferences. They're trying to price for a project versus a long term thing versus I only have so much cash for the next three months, and and you have to be conscious of that. Um, <laughs> it is uh, it, it's it's like you were talking to us before. Like the the biggest burden you have to explain to people is that. If you actually want to sell and make your SaaS useful, you actually have to talk to people, which is very anti-computer science.
2: Yeah, yeah. In, inevitably, if if what you want to do is sell large deals to large companies, you need a lot of people who are going to talk to a lot of other people. Yeah. There's no getting around it.
0: Exactly, exactly. So um, the, sort of the flip side of that, I, I know… I've talked to a number of companies, you know, what they would be considered, like you said, large enterprises or and, and in a lot of cases, they will start saying, hey, um, you know, we've, we've been an IT organization for a long time. We are really good at something and we'd like to turn that into a SaaS or we, they think of it as like we have software. We'd like to turn that into a SaaS. Can you talk a little bit because you've been on the engineering side of various products like. What's the difference between, like, I have software, I run it on servers, and the sort of what you have to do in real life to make something a SaaS? Because it's not, I mean, there's nowhere. There's no Apple's-dabbles comparisons there, right?
2: Yeah, it's it's hard because a lot of people, when they think about software as a service, if they think this is a, a true cloud-native software as a service, then inherently it's going to be multi-tenant. And you have very fine-grained metering and billing capabilities, but the scenario you're talking about usually is single tenant. Right. It's one piece of so basically all you're saying is I'm going to put an API in front of a thing, right? Or I'm going to put a UI that you can access over the web or via an app in Mm -hmm. front of a thing that I'm still running, which is from the perspective of the consumer of that product and the user is software as a service, but from the perspective of the operator isn't really
0: right right um one of the things i think uh we have lots of people that listen to the show that are in software somehow either they they operate software or they make software for a vendor or consultant or something one of the big advantages you have as a SaaS company is you get to actually see what people are doing with your software whereas if you're a package software vendor you you send them something they use it you have no idea like can you Talk about kind of the, the product manager mentality when you actually get to see what people use versus going, well, somebody said they'd like that feature or our competitor makes a feature so we should do it ourselves. Like,
2: how, how does that change your mindset? In good and bad ways. Yeah. Um, the, the good way is that you have you have something to back up. Right. Claim, right? You can be like, oh, we thought it was a good idea to build X because customers were saying we want X. We We built a beta of X, no one uses it, no one will give us feedback on it, and even though they said they wanted it, turns out in reality, those words don't translate into action, so we're not gonna build that. Right. And you can save a six-month development cycle that way. The bad thing about it is that frequently people will become conservative and risk-averse about placing bets on a good idea because they'll be looking for data And the data might not show up for any number of reasons that have nothing to do with whether or not that idea is good. Right. So I found in a lot of ways, a lot of startup people are very conservative and risk averse about what they build because they won't build anything for which there is no data. And sometimes you have a chicken and egg problem.
0: Right, right. And I'd imagine the other dilemma you have is, you may have a feature that everybody loves but doesn't make any money, and then you have the dilemma of well i'm I'm basically burning money because Absolutely. to to make somebody happy
1: well that's the risk of innovation isn't it if you don't uh, you can't have data on something that doesn't exist yet sort of a that is an interesting chicken and egg problem, yeah, because it would quell all innovation if we demanded that we knew it was successful beforehand
0: right which which brings up the classic sort of like well, if, if I just put out an MVP, it won't be good enough, and people won't want it, and so I have to invest more. But if, yeah, it's a it's a lot of interesting chicken and eggs.
2: Yeah, but I'm, but that but that's the real art of building something, right? Right. You you have to you have to build enough so that people have something to like bang their heads against, right. So that you get useful feedback, and whatever method you get feedback to then move to the next stage, and figuring out where that line is is, is basically the work. Right. Right. Well, it, but at
0: the end of the day. It, it, if if you are operating the software, you do have that one distinct advantage of you do at least get to see what people are doing, right? You've, you've removed that much friction to, to see if it works or not. Um, go ahead.
1: I'm really curious. Do you think that we're into risk averse market now because money is tighter? People are concerned about events in the world. Do you think we're going to see uh, innovation stopped? Or is there always somebody out there building that better mousetrap?
2: We're in a weird market. Yeah money is still extremely cheap from the perspective of if you want to start a company, if you're in a handful of verticals or a handful of spaces, you can raise money. You can have nothing and raise money. On the flip side, if you don't show traction fairly quickly, raising that next round of funding is incredibly hard right now. And the, the hurdles are getting higher where people are demanding more and more to raise your growth stage of funding or your your second institutional round, which which it's, it's, like, it's like a two-pronged problem. One is that there's a lot of support for coming up with new ideas and innovating. On the flip side, there's almost no support for people who don't get traction really fast. So, the, so there's like a weeding out effect that happens.
0: Right, which is the, the dilemma. If you're, like you said, you're trying to sell to, to big companies to enterprises, their buying cycles aren't necessarily fast. Or Yeah,
2: this is actually a big problem in enterprise software because getting real traction in enterprise software takes just a long time in general. It's the rare case that it happens quickly. Right. We're talking about something where you might not even know if you have a business for five years. Right. But it's really hard to get five years worth of funding these days.
0: Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, we talked a little bit about, you know, every every SaaS application is, in essence, a, a process. Um, we see lots of SaaS that is, you know, could replace something that you already have. Have you seen much success in companies that that actually, you know, have some legacy, Version of something of software migrate to SaaS, or did did they typically think of SaaS as like this is our opportunity to break away from maybe all the bad habits or all the bad stuff that we've we've been dealing with? I I, I'm always curious about that. Is is it worth the hassle? You know, it it could be something as simple as like email, but it could be something more you know more sophisticated like payroll processing or something else. Um, Or is SaaS really the the thing where you say, hey, look, this is our chance to break free. We don't we don't need to be in that a we don't really need to be in that business but b we don't need to have that that baggage or that technical debt anymore i'm
2: going to give another unsatisfying answer <laughs> there is no consistent pattern the overall trend is more SaaS adoption over time period yeah and i don't think that trend's going away or changing but there is no consistent pattern because everything is sort of path dependent right you know, like a particular company has a particular set of people that have a set of biases and experiences and backgrounds, and they buy things a certain way, and they think about things a certain way, and the only way to figure out how they're going to go about changing is specific to them. You can't be like, oh, this investment bank did things this way, so every investment bank. Well, that's just not how it works. Right.
1: My question is what impact that has on people who work in the industry. So... um, does it mean the jobs shift? Does more work get outsourced? How does that work? If every company is a technology company, how do they need the people who decide which SAS resources to use? Does it lower the amount of folks they have on staff? Like what's the what's the impact?
2: I think the simplest way of thinking about it is that Using a software as a service product it's not necessarily different from outsourcing, because what you're saying is this thing that we're going to operate ourselves and we bought an off-the-shelf piece of software to do or a customizable piece of software to do that ran on a bunch of hardware or whatever that we owned is now going to be operated by someone else, and this whole tower of things goes away and is now someone else's problem, and we just pay them.
0: Yeah. Is there a... And I think I I know the answer to this. I think it's going to be sort of a... It depends. But is there a... Is there a buying center at companies that are SaaS, or is SaaS just, as a general category, has such a low entry, so little friction that everybody is buying within a company? Like, like if you you know you're advising some company who says, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna kind of go make a service to do SaaS to go after whatever." Is there a? I mean, there. Like, I never see anybody who's the VP of SaaS buying. Right? It's just it's kind of anybody, right?
2: There is no buying center. Yeah. The. One of the great things about software-as-a-service, if you're uh, a startup or someone who's who's building a a software-as-a-service product, is that your buyer is frequently the user or your buyer is in the tower of Mm -hmm. your user. So it's someone a step up or two steps up from your user. You don't have to go deal with a centralized buyer, typically. And which makes your life easier because that means you don't have to build a top-down sales model. On the flip side, that also means that buying power is completely distributed. Right.
1: It's interesting to me, having worked in a number of large um, tech companies, that the risk there is the distribution, the shadow IT problem, right? Because the IT department can often feel like that's taking control out of their hands. Anybody with a credit card can potentially solve a problem from from my side as a marketer, like I've invested in in SaaS offerings to solve a problem that I couldn't get managed another way. Right. But I also recognize that I'm I'm uh prey to whoever is selling me something and is it crap and have I done my research, et cetera, et cetera. Is it a quick fix for a long term problem? It is an interesting problem for companies, for enterprise.
0: Yeah it, it it almost it almost makes the it, it's almost flipped the we, we've reached a point where it's almost flipped right shadow IT used to be the hey we're we're going around IT IT has almost become their own shadow IT because they're not adopting it or they're not they're not driving it and so forth and
2: yeah I, I think in the long run this is generally better because if you're someone who's running a company what you want is for people to independently achieve the goals that they've been given and not have a bunch of roadblocks in their way that are not useful. I mean, there are roadblocks that are useful. Roadblocks that remove regulatory risk, for instance, are yep. very useful. Right. Roadblocks that are purely process-oriented, that don't remove risk from the business, don't serve any real purpose. Right. So if people go off and buy a thing. I mean, that's good.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah you're, moving, you're moving the needle. Um, I want to ask you two questions sort of about the industry. Um, we've seen this, you know, where a SaaS company will start off doing something really well, right? Salesforce is kind of the premier example, right? CRM. And then at some point they start moving into other spaces. I and mean, we've seen this with Git, with GitHub, you know, they start to do other stuff, it, you know, is a successful SaaS company's future always going to become sort of go from one application to becoming a platform business. Is that sort of the natural evolution we should expect to see from, from anybody who's been successful?
2: Sort of. I mean, I, I'm going to answer this question a different way. Yeah. So the, the way I would suggest thinking about this is that over time in any given niche space where you build a product like CRM and you do software as a service, you're going to top out on TAM yeah. and you're going to grow the market you can acquire at an increasingly smaller incremental rate every year. And if you become public, which is probably what you do if you are successful or if you get really big, you inevitably have to go get more TAM somewhere else. And that usually means going sideways. Right. So you don't necessarily become a platform company, but you will definitely become a company that wants to dominate either a vertical or a persona. So if you think of Salesforce as a company that wants to own the entire funnel, right? So they'll have products from the very top of the funnel awareness and acquisition, all the way to the bottom of the funnel, closing deals yep. and sales. And If you look at all their acquisitions over time, each of them slots in nicely into some aspect of running the entire funnel for large companies. Right. On the flip side, if you look at a company like Datadog, they're serving an essentially operations-oriented persona, and they're providing more and more tools over time in a portfolio like SolarWinds did a generation ago, or like CA or BNC did a generation before that to serve that persona for their entire job. Right,
0: right. Yeah. And we're seeing this with GitHub with you know developer lifecycle tools and things, those things like that. Yeah.
1: So what is the goal for folks these days? Is it the big IPO? Is it acquisition? Is it market adjacency or domination of a, a particular vertical? What what would you advise people to think about their goals?
2: Oh, I have no advice. That is is such a personal, what I want out of the world and for myself decision. And uh, there are a lot of factors. There's a lot of ego. There's a lot of what your investors want. There's a lot of uh, what your team wants. If you're a founder and you balance all these things, and you make whatever decision is best at any given point and hopefully you're lucky and one of those decisions turns into money. But more often than not, you're not lucky and those decisions turn into zero money.
0: Yeah, and timing's everything, and your investors' goals are everything, and, yeah, you're balancing all that stuff. So one, one last question. We, we sort of can't do a show these days without somehow talking about AWS. Um, why – Why? and I have some guesses, but, like, why do you think AWS doesn't yet have much of a SaaS portfolio versus, you know, kind of the lower levels of the stack
2: they're gone after? Oh, man, I don't agree with that. Okay. So if we back up for a second, Amazon, the company – is an e commerce software provider that's enormous. Yeah. That is all a software as a service business for e commerce companies and people who want to buy advertising, et cetera. Yeah. And we talk about AWS in specific. CloudFront mm-hmm. It is a SaaS yeah. service, right? CDN, yeah. Yeah. CloudWatch, that's like, yeah, Monitoring service, right, and that's pure SaaS service. I think AWS has a lot of SaaS services. It's just because their core product set was an infrastructure offering, APIs. Yeah. Uh, people think about them as an infrastructure software company, and that's not really hasn't been the case for a while.
0: Right, right, yeah. I, I think my my thought process, and I, you know, yeah, I think you make good points. Is like you don't see them building a CRM, you don't see them building a uh, yeah. you know construction right, right, right. construction tracking you know application or something, although. Probably a lot of those run on AWS today.
2: Yeah, I mean, they don't. There's a, there's one way to think about this, which is, AWS doesn't need to actually enter other businesses because yep. those businesses are built on AWS anyway. They right. make they, they're going to make money regardless. Right, right. If you build a thing, they make money. If they build a thing, they make money. Right. They're going to make money.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, and there's a there's probably a certain balance they have with you know not pissing off the VC ecosystem who comes and gives them money indirectly and all those other things. So, yeah, it's very, very interesting. I think uh, people have always asked, like, why are they aren't in the application business? But you're right. I mean, being in the shipping and logistics business for Amazon is essentially being in that business or, or anything else they do. So...
1: Yeah, I know because I was just after the holidays. They were talking about the amount of packages that cycle through them versus the United States Postal Service. It's right, pretty amazing.
0: Right, like, yeah, I, and that's and that's probably the best way to think about it. Is there's so much that happens within Amazon? I mean, they're the largest. Uh, they're becoming one of the largest search providers in the world, right? And you don't really think about that, but at least search for, for uh, e-commerce, they are. So, Anil and Amy, thank you so much, uh, Anil. I'll sort of since we've been talking to you, any. Good places where people can find I we'll we'll put a link to the to the medium posts. Any other places where you're hanging out, like up in New York City, you know, if uh startup people wanna come pick your brain on stuff, any good places to find you?
2: Uh sure. I'm easiest to find on Twitter. It's at Anil. You'll find the handle in the show notes.
0: Yep. And if you want to know when he's getting coffee, you can just follow him along. It's every day, that's right. Amy, uh, quick plug: I know you're kicking off a new podcast. Any other cool stuff you're working on these days?
1: Um, that's probably going to be the most fun thing. I look for the episode soon mm-hmm. as uh, getting what, the gang back together. What's it going to be called? Um, the Nerd Herd. All right, it's going to be Greg Nierman, Eddie Syppet, Sarah Bella, and myself.
0: Very so, cool. The former speaking
1: in tech. All right, excellent, <laughs>
0: excellent, excellent. Well, folks, with that, uh, we hope you enjoyed it today, and we'd like to cover a whole bunch of different parts of, of SaaS. With that, we're going to wrap it up. Thanks again for telling a friend. Thanks for supporting the show. And uh, with that, we'll talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to The Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more shows, show notes, videos, and everything social media.